1: I'm Janice Dean. I'm David Asman. I'm Dana Perino. And this is the Fox News Rundown.
2: Thursday, February 29th, 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. He hasn't been to the southern border in over a year, but President Biden's making the second trip of his presidency to the area in Brownsville, Texas, today, the same day former President Trump visits Eagle Pass, Texas.
3: First and foremost, recognize that the issue of immigration and the system being broken, it's been broken for, for decades.
4: The two are posturing over the politics of the border.
3: He's going to try and make the case of the American
4: people, one that actually really succeeded for years. My hands are tied. Now, that's a farce that can't be continued anymore. I'm Dave Anthony. Inflation overall
5: has come down. It isn't as bad as it was two years ago, but the damage is done.
6: Essentially, you had the invisible hand of the economy. Take one-fifth of your buying power away. And whether we get some of that restored more substantially
0: remains to be seen. And I'm Jim Florentine. I got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
2: President Biden is going to Brownsville, Texas today. Former President Trump is headed to Eagle Pass, Texas. When asked about why he was going to the border after staying away for months as the crisis has worsened, the president said from New York...
5: I've been planning to go Thursday. What I didn't know is... My good friend apparently is gone.
2: The move comes before Super Tuesday, before his State of the Union speech next week, and his polling shows it's the president's worst issue. It also comes after Republicans in the House voted down a bill that some Senate Republicans said would help stop the flow of migrants.
0: There is zero chance I will support this horrible open borders betrayal of America. It's not going to happen. I noticed that... And I'll fight
2: it all the way. Former President Trump said in Nevada earlier this month that many lawmakers specifically in the Senate were worried about the bill failing.
0: They're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay. Please blame it on me, please. Because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. And I'll tell you what, a bad bill is, I'd rather have no bill than a bad bill.
2: Well, President Biden did blame it on former President Trump.
3: All indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't, even though it helps the, the country, he's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it.
2: The White House has said the president has no plan to issue any executive orders regarding the border following his visit, and that the answer lies in legislation. Also, Texas is not the hotspot for illegal entry it once was. Migrants have been moving west to Lukeville, Arizona, and Hakumba California.
3: First and foremost... We have to recognize that this president has been advocating for an immigration reform bill, even much bigger than the border bill, the, the bipartisan border bill that, that we know about now.
2: Jose Arista Munoz is a former deputy national press secretary for the Democratic National Committee and a former Obama official.
3: Even since the first day that he was sworn into office, the White House put forth a uh, full immigration bill on the table and and as you know he hasn't gotten much traction from from republicans It's gotten traction from from democrats but unfortunately obviously with, with the coin political climate in washington and donald trump running for for president once again he knows and he said it himself he knows well, do you think, that, but do
2: you well wait jose do you think the president really thought that piece of legislation would pass muster with republicans or do you think it was a really fair effort um, no, you know, knowing that Republicans wouldn't go for for certain aspects of the legislation.
3: Well, I think the president he had real optimism that the recent bipartisan border bill was going to pass. I really do believe that, um, especially because two things: a majority of Americans supported broadly, Republicans and Democrats, and and, and secondly, you know, he he thought, look, the American people are going to win out of this, and Republicans are going to score some points, and and Democrats are going to score some points now. Trump, who's no longer in office, he wouldn't score any points because he's not really relevant, and other than being a candidate. So, and he said himself, he said, "Look, if I let Biden, if I, if we allow this border bill to go through, that is a victory for Joe Biden, and it's a defeat for me, for me personally, Donald Trump." So, uh, at the end of the day, they're, they're playing politics with something that is. Uh, not political. It's about immigration. It's about children. It's about a drug crisis. It's about many, many things that supposedly they care about, but clearly they don't care about it enough because they care more about politics.
2: Well Trump said that he you know he he would rather have no bill than a bad bill but does the president think after the border legislation failed that with this trip he can sort of turn the issue back on republicans you know accuse them of failing to pass border legislation before the state of the union next week and that that will somehow politically like mitigate or even erase what's been going on at the border over the past 3 years
3: look, I, I think we have to first and foremost recognize that the issue of immigration and the system being broken, it's been broken for for decades. It was broken with Obama it was you know broken sure. with Bush. I mean Trump, you name yeah. it. So that's number one. Number two, what I'll say is you know a hundred percent doing it before the the State of the union it's a way to to make sure that we turn on the accelerator when it comes to the messaging. and And the president has said it. He said it very clear. Having Republicans block this bill to even making it to the floor. Well, if that's the route you want to go, fine, but I'm going to make sure everybody in America knows who is to blame, and that is Donald Trump.
2: Uh, Jose Ibarra, as you know, is accused of killing a UGA nursing student, Lincoln Riley. A migrant from El Salvador is accused of second-degree murder and the death of a two-year-old. That individual had previously been in custody in Maryland, but ICE says the Montgomery County Detention Center refused to honor their request for a detainer to hold him, um, to deport him. How much are crimes committed by undocumented migrants factoring into the president's trip, or maybe the future conversations about the border among Democrats?
3: First and foremost, our, our heart uh, goes out to all the families, and it breaks my heart. Uh, this sort of violence should not be tolerated by anybody, right? Documented or undocumented, American or not American—that's that's number right. one. I believe that if we pass comprehensive immigration reform, you know what's going to do? We're going to allow it to legalize a majority of good-serving people, and that's going to allow us to catch the bad ones, because the bad ones are not going to come forward, right, because they know that they're doing something wrong or some sort of crime. So I think we legalize millions of people in this country for in a long path to citizenship, by the way, because they should go to the back of the line, they should learn English, and they should pay taxes. But eventually, they'll be legalized, and that's going to allow us to look for the bad guys a lot quicker and a lot faster.
2: Okay, finally, the president said he you know, he'd done all he could do, right? Before the, bill, before the bill failed, he told reporters, Congress just needs to give him the authority. But the president, as you know, whoever he is, Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, whoever, has pretty broad authority on who's allowed into our country. And that's been the case for decades. Trump, we saw it with Trump, right? With the numerous executive orders. There are some reports that Biden's considering an executive order. So I, I wonder which, which is it, do you think? Does he need Congress? Or is he really considering an executive order um, in this election year after that bill failed?
3: yeah look if you want long lasting change and especially when it comes to funding of any agency of any uh in this case being be the border or being immigration department of Homeland Security, you need Congress that's number one uh, executive orders are great um they can help but they're never you're never going to be able to go the full force of the u s government if you don't use the le- legislative route which is which is Congress. can Biden do more with with the, the executive orders? I think he can I think. There's a big chance that he will, especially on the asylum route. Um, But at the end of the day, that's not going to be enough. We need more money. We need more technology at, at, at the border. And the only way to get that done is with Republicans and Democrats coming together.
2: So now as former President Trump moves forward in the nominating process, can he continue to campaign on the border in the way he had? And will President Biden's border stop change anything?
4: Politics have forced him to. He's got no option, essentially.
2: Christopher Bedford is a senior contributor at The Federalist.
4: The White House is looking at the polls in this next coming, incoming election, and they're saying that, well, a lot of their base has really pushed for these open border policies. When you've got rebellions in New York with Mayor Eric Adams, when you've got uh, Democratic mayors in Chicago and Washington, D.C., starting to sound more like Jeff Sessions, <laughs> well, then you're actually – you've got some trouble on your hands, and they need to try and convince the, Ameri- the broader American people, especially independents, that they're dealing with this. Now, former President Trump is going as well.
2: He announced his trip before Biden did. President Biden, though, said the the legislation that would have addressed the flow of migrants, that that failed a few weeks ago because Trump wanted it to. He said that Trump called House Republican members and told them don't vote for it. Was it at all risky for Republicans to vote the bill down after President Trump weighed in? Or can they sufficiently make the case that that border bill was so bad it needed to go?
4: It was so bad it needed to go, and it's silly to blame Donald Trump. There was always a group of—I mean, honestly, Donald Trump was kind of late to the game. Previously, you had senators like Mike Lee of Utah banging pots and pans and saying, we want to read this bill, we want to read this bill. You know, there's indication that the Senate leadership on both sides kind of knew that this, this was doomed to fail. Mitch McConnell wants to get this out of the way in his last couple months left in office— He wants to talk about Ukraine. That's kind of his legacy issue. And he put Senator James Lankford out there to try and sell this secret deal until the very end. Got the backing of the journal and some other places. Meanwhile, Chuck Schumer seemingly never actually expected to have to defend this bill, even with his left wing of his caucus. They never even tried because, well, it was nothing like what Republicans wanted to. It was also something that would have ticked off members of the squad and some of his left wing and at the end of the day, it was an amnesty bill, essentially. There was no way that Republicans were ever going to actually back that. And also, it would have, tied, would have tied Republicans' hands in the next administration by having actual law done by Congress that would have stopped the next president, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, from being able to kind of deal with what needs to be dealt with on this border. So it was a shrewd political maneuver by Democrats, and one that was a trap that was difficult to avoid once Mitch McConnell signed on. But it was I think it was intelligent in the long term for Republicans to say no to this because it wasn't going to solve any of the underlying issues.
2: But the border is something former President Trump wants to run on, right? I mean, especially with uh, abortion being an issue that Democrats are going to be um, pushing and talking about. We know that and we know that um, Republicans are still sort of searching for that cohesive message. The, the border is something that President Biden pulls very low on and President Trump um succeeded with uh, numerous executive actions on it it is something he wants to run on no
4: yeah and that's why you'll see president biden and former president trump at the border you're going to see a pretty marked difference in their leader and and who's talking to who and where they're going uh at the end of the day you're going to have joe biden in an area of the border that's brownsville texas that's pretty much a safe haven it's not a spot that's particularly chaotic He's going to try and make the case to the American people, one that actually really succeeded for years, that things are fine, that this administration is doing what they can, or maybe a little bit of my hands are tied. Now, that's a farce that can't be continued anymore, because we know, as you just mentioned, that the last administration was able to bring the border down to 20-year lows with a series of executive actions. So D.C. saying it doesn't work doesn't actually help. But Trump's taking a different approach. He's going to Shelby Park, which is that place where Governor Greg Abbott sent the National Guard in.
2: And I just want your reaction before we let you go to Trump saying that immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country. I have a feeling we'll be seeing that clip in a few Democratic ads uh, as the election year uh, marches forward. Is that is that kind of language too stark? Does it push potential legal immigrant voters away from Trump?
4: And that's kind of a Rorschach test there is what she thought he meant by that. Uh, The the president seems to me, at least from what I could tell, seemed to be talking about the flow of deadly narcotics, particularly fentanyl, which is killing people from the lower classes all the way to the elite. I mean, you could be Tom Petty or you could be a a smack addict in the streets and fentanyl could potentially kill you. And that seems to be what he was talking about. But a lot of Democrats who for a long time have successfully with independent Americans painted Donald Trump as an extremist with fascist tendencies, they try to draw correlations to Hitler, who did talk about protecting the bloodstream. That's the kind of thing that they're going to try and air. Uh, whether or not that's going to move the voters is going to be, I guess, up to the candidate. So maybe Donald Trump actually has the ability to get past that kind of messaging and say. I know there was a lot of vitriol, but if you look back on those four years I was president, what really was so bad about it? And see if you can convince the American people of that.
2: Christopher Bedford, uh, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy.
7: And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, The Duffies, at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Tuesday, Fox News Radio has complete coverage of Super Tuesday. Jared Halpern and Jessica Rosenthal bring you the results as they happen. Just click listen on the Fox News app starting at 9 p.m. Eastern to hear it all. It's Democracy 24 on Fox News Radio.
0: This is Jim Florentine
5: with your Fox News commentary coming up. We'll get another update on inflation today. A price index known as the PCE, short for Personal Consumption Expenditures, which could show a creeping back up weeks after a worse than expected CPI report. Another inflation gauge showing consumer prices rose a bit more than predicted in January over December and the rate of increase did not slow as much as economists had hoped with a 3.1% year-over-year pace. Inflation is still too high. Ongoing progress in bringing it down is not assured and the path forward is uncertain. So Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell is not ready yet to cut the interest rates that were raised 11 times starting in 2022 when inflation peaked at 9%. The most important thing
6: about Uh, What to know about the PCE is that it is the main index of inflation that is tracked by the Federal Reserve. Mark
5: Hamrick is Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.
6: Let's keep in mind, Federal Reserve starting raising interest rates almost two years ago in response to the worst inflation in a generation. And so those rates have been sort of stuck at a certain high level for a while now in terms of what the Fed manages. And it's keeping an eye on the PCE as it looks to gain greater confidence, in the words of Chairman Jerome Powell, that inflation is coming down sustainably toward their 2 percent annual target.
5: Now, that that, that target, Mark, I know that it's it's how important do they have to get to 2 percent before they start to cut rates? Because the expectation is that rates will be cut sometime this year. Do they have to get to that or at least get close to it? What do you think?
6: Well, they address this issue regularly, and the answer is no. The reality is that as inflation comes down, and this benchmark rate that the Fed sort of pinpoints at roughly 5.4%, every tick down that we see with inflation, that rate becomes increasingly restrictive. That's just the way it works. And so they don't want to become overly restrictive, and we know the outcome of that could be to essentially send the economy into the ditch uh, in the form of a contraction or at least extremely slow growth. Uh, And that's the outcome they're trying to avoid. Also, they don't want to sort of upset the apple cart with respect to financial stability. We had a dose of that not quite a year ago with some of the bank failures. Right. I, I think one of the most important things is even though the trends on inflation are looking better, the absolute price levels are essentially, broadly speaking, still quite elevated. The consumer price index, the main gauge of inflation at the retail level, is still up about 20% compared to where it was in the pandemic. So, the translation of that is that essentially you had the invisible hand of the economy take one fifth of your buying power away. And whether we get some of that restored, More substantially remains to be seen. We are seeing some disinflation with goods prices coming down, services remaining uh, somewhat elevated more so.
5: Yeah. Now, when we look at these numbers, the two things that are a lot of times excluded from some of these reports would be food and energy. But these are the things we have to buy food every day, every week, the grocery store. So that's something people see on a daily or weekly basis.
6: Well, we have different ways of looking at the data and parsing the data. For example, the price of eggs was so high, and then it came down, and now it's gone back up a little bit. And just that alone irritates people. Right. Uh, Same with gasoline, because that's literally going up in smoke after they put it in their car. And the price of food remains elevated as well. Price of food is up about 25 percent compared to where it was before the pandemic, as opposed to that 20 percent benchmark with the consumer price index. And the hard
5: thing of that, Mark, is that you can cut a lot of things out of your budget. You can't do that, right? I mean, you can maybe you can buy cheaper products or cheaper things or cheaper groceries, but you got to eat. It's hard to you can't cut that out of your budget.
6: We are creatures of habit, uh, and also we don't always make rational decisions. That's the nature of being human. And we know from psychological research that not every decision we make is sort of one where we're sort of checking off boxes with, re- with respect to logic. A lot of what we do is emotional.
5: Right. And there's uh, a lot of so, impulse buying at the grocery store. We all know that.
6: Exactly. Yeah. The grocery stores make money off of that. But the other part is that, you know, we're also very much looking to sort of recover from the pandemic in the sense of doing the things that we couldn't do during. During the pandemic and so one of the beneficiaries of that is dining out and so the cost of dining out is higher than dining at home and the inflation rate on food away from home is higher than the eating at home as well so i'm not saying people shouldn't enjoy their lives i'm just saying there's a cost associated with doing these things
5: yeah and another thing of course that is getting a lot more attention you mentioned some services are pricier these days as with inflation as we shift some of the things that are getting costlier insurance has really spiked. Let's start with car insurance. It's like 26% higher year over year. That's a lot.
6: Absolutely. And so it is very complex, but there are, I would say about a half dozen different factors that have essentially come together to make car insurance costs go up. People are driving poorly, Compared to where they were before the pandemic, many more accidents.
5: We see people with their cell phones. I see them. You see them. Yeah. Racing
6: on the highway. Uh, And so, you know, when that person has an accident, there's a cost to that. The claims are up. The cost to repair is up. The average price of a new automobile is close to $50,000. We have higher claims that are based on fraud. We have higher claims that are based on extreme weather events that are occurring at a more rapid rate, more severely all around the country. Uh, And we're having more theft. So, you know, Let's say my grandfather's car, maybe even the one that I started to drive as a kid, oh, so many years ago. The complexity of the parts on those cars were, you know, nil. Yeah. Now, if you want to replace a rear view mirror, a side rear view mirror that is motorized and has a camera in it, you know, good luck at doing that at under $1,000.
5: Yeah, it's not easy to tinker in the driveway anymore with your new car. <laughs> That's right. When you're talking about insurance, though aren't insurance companies also dealing and they have to they have lots of different things that they insure they're dealing with higher costs for a lot of things especially housing home insurance has gone up certain places that have been hit by natural disasters hurricanes and such i mean they're paying for that even though it may be hitting florida or california or something everybody's gonna have to pay for that right To some degree, they do try to price risk, you know,
6: specific to the locality to a large degree, but, and they're also different business models. Some are not for profit, essentially, the mutual companies, and there are those that are for profit. Uh, Much the same as thinking about banks and credit unions, the latter being not for profit. Uh, The other part is that we've had a consistent rise in home prices around the country. That also has been to some degree a pandemic phenomenon. But also, just as you indicated, with more and more events that are causing damages to homes, uh, there is a cost associated with that. And the other part is we should not overlook is that insurance broadly as an industry is regulated heavily by individual states. And one of the questions that comes up before those state regulators is the request for a cost increase, right? Because the insurance companies have to price for risk and they have to cover their costs. And if they're for profit, they want to make a little more than that and the problem is that if the regulators don't give them the what they essentially they think they need to operate then they exit those markets meaning they don't do business there anymore because they say we can't make this work and so we're seeing that in some of these uh, areas of the country like florida louisiana uh california where the intensity and cost of these repeated events ends up being too much to bear so the final part of that dave is that the people who own these assets in the sense of the housing they look to governments to cover those costs and say well you're the last chance for me to insure this ultimately even the taxpayers cannot bear those costs forever at a sort of infinite rate and so this is going to be an increasing problem that we have to deal with
5: when we mentioned the fed earlier we talked about the interest rate hikes that has of course made everything more expensive for us to borrow. And when we use our credit cards, if we don't pay off the debt every single month, there, of course, have been reports about debt on the rise last month, seven or last quarter, rather $17.5 trillion in debt for consumers. That was a record high. And the average card balance is up 10% in the past year. Does that concern you?
6: Where it concerns me is not so much a systemic or structural issue as it is concern for the households that are carrying those interest costs because the bank rate average on a credit card for essentially new offers for the best qualified individuals, those with the highest credit scores, continues to be at 20 and three quarters percent. And that also means that there are many cards that are up closer to 30. And so for about half of the credit card carriers, they are allowing that interest to carry over beyond the current month, which means they are incurring that expense of the added interest. And so uh, people really do have to try to be very diligent about having emergency savings while continuing to save for retirement, paying down or paying off debt. And that includes being very careful about the use of credit card debt because that is essentially, in terms of the legal aspects of borrowing, that's the most expensive, you know, product that you can use. And uh, like a hammer, you can use it to build a house or hit your thumb. You can use credit card uh, as a tool wisely. and, And perhaps, you know, we would urge people to pay that off, you know, as soon as they can. If you like rewards, cash back, hotel, airline points, whatever it is, great. I'm a big user of those myself. But you just cannot incur the added expense because that gets very costly.
5: Yeah. Delinquencies are on the rise. That oftentimes leads to bankruptcy, right?
6: Well, it's difficult to discharge all these debts in bankruptcy, but my point would be that what it ultimately does is it damages your ability to achieve your financial goals. And so, you know, if you're if you're not staying current on your bills, then your credit score goes down, becomes more difficult to do all kinds of things, include including borrowing more money, and in some cases. Bring it back around, that can inform even insurance companies as to how they're going to price your premiums because they see you as a higher risk. So, um, th- this this is the best argument I can ever make for prioritizing emergency savings at a time when we talk about the downside of high interest rates. The upside of high interest rates is the superior return on savings. It's easy to find a, a product out there, whether it's a high yield savings account, a CD, money market account, paying four or five percent plus. And so, you know, pay yourself first and automate that uh, savings account with direct deposit and uh, Soon enough, you'll be insuring yourself against that next emergency expense.
5: Mark Hamrick, Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining
7: us again. Always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. Meet the American Who.
1: Mended, defective infant hearts. Vivian Theodore Thomas was born on August 29, 1910, in New Iberia, Louisiana. Thomas was raised in Nashville, Tennessee, and graduated with honors from Pearl High School in 1929. After completing school, he worked as a carpenter and harbored dreams of attending college and eventually medical school when the stock market crashed the same year. His college savings were wiped clean, prompting him to find work elsewhere. Ultimately, Thomas became a research assistant at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, working alongside Dr. Blalock. Due to institutional racism at the time, Thomas was paid as a janitor despite doing the work of a postdoctoral researcher by the mid-1930s. Vanderbilt University reports that the pair conducted groundbreaking research into the causes of hemorrhagic and traumatic shock during World War II. In 1941, Dr. Blalock was offered to become the chief of surgery at Johns Hopkins, insisting his gifted partner travel with him. Thomas and Dr. Blalock perfected the technique to repair defected hearts. After hundreds of demonstrations and experiments performed on dogs, on November 29, 1944, The pair successfully repaired the heart of an 18-month-old suffering from Blue Baby Syndrome while struggling to complete the surgery. Dr. Blalock needed help from his expert assistant and asked him to leave the gallery and walk him through the technique. In 1976, Thomas received an honorary doctorate from Johns Hopkins and joined the faculty as surgery instructor the same year. Vivian Thomas died from pancreatic cancer on November 26, 1985 in Baltimore, Maryland at 75 years old. The life-saving procedure performed in 1944 has since been renamed the blalock thomas shunt and has saved thousands of babies ever since.
7: From the Fox News Podcasts Network.
1: I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.
7: Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com.
5: It's time for your Fox News commentary.
1: Jim Florentine.
5: What's
0: on your mind? Hey, this is Jim Florentine. I'm a stand-up comic. I got booked in Seattle to do this club me and three other comics we have the same manager and tickets were on sale and then two weeks later after they were on sale we got an email that we were canceled because they checked with the community and and the people that lived in the community and we're a very progressive club and we asked around that basically uh, we don't approve these guys coming to our club and saying the things they're going to say on our stage so they canceled all our comedy dates that we had all four weekends for the four comics after they just booked us and were selling tickets and everything else. So lo and behold, the story got out there was making news and us four comics all got offers from other venues in the area said, we'll take you, this doesn't represent Seattle. So they all honored our dates. So we're gonna work over there. You know, none of us are that outrageous on stage. I, I'm friends with the other comics, Dave Smith, Louis J. Gomez, Kurt Metzger. We're not out crazy on stage, so I don't know why we heard it from the local comics. They were upset that we're going to play there, maybe take their stage time. They don't approve our acts. You know, we're from the East Coast, so we're a little rough around the edges. And I guess they don't like that style of comedy out there, so they wanted to censor us for some reason. But, you know, it it backfired on them because we're going to work 20 minutes away at a different club, a bigger club, a better club, and all our fans are going to go see us there. You could tell the tide is definitely turning on this woke culture, cancel culture, because Shane Gillis, a guy that got fired from Saturday Night Live five years ago, because they found a couple of inappropriate things he said on a podcast, just hosted Saturday night live, you know, was in all the sketches, did a great monologue and Shane got bigger, not being on Saturday night live and they brought him back and they let him say words on stage. That monologue, some of the stuff that he said was crazy. They let him get away with it because they know he's bigger than Saturday night live at this point. So I really think, that even if someone tries to cancel you, there's a million other avenue. Everybody else will take you. Before maybe three, four, or five years ago, nobody would touch you. Now everyone's like, "Come here, we'll, we'll welcome you," which is a great feeling, and it's finally the tides are turning. I get into comedy to push boundaries on stage to ride that fine line. Sometimes you go over it, and that's what comedy is supposed to be about. People come in, and you know come to the comedy club and like, wow, that was great. The way he said it, the way he worded it. And, you know, that's why I got in this business. I'd still been doing it the same way every year. And if this club in Seattle is going to say, well, we don't like your style of comedy, no problem. In the end, you know, we were going to draw all our fans to this club. We all have followings. We would have went to, all our fans would have went to this club that canceled us. Now they're going to go to the other club 20 minutes away. So who does it really, who does it really benefit? It benefits that other club that was willing to take a chance on us. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, woke culture, cancel culture is over. I'm Jim Florentine, stand-up comic, and uh, you can catch all my comedy tour dates on my website, jimflorentine.com. I check out my podcast,
7: Everybody is Awful.